people don't act like they act on Twitter in real life. You know how many times I've had people cuss me out, call me names on Twitter. That doesn't happen to me in real life. Maybe it's because I'm 6'4", 250, covered in tattoos, and can likely whoop your fucking ass. So I've been up here a week in uh, Montana and that has flown by. I don't know if I ever want to leave. I feel like this every time I come up here, but I got my tree dashers with me from Allbirds uh, and they were made for this. I thought they were made for Virginia. They're made for Montana too. They're lightweight. They're tough. They're made of all natural materials and Allbirds is the sponsor of the green light pod. So we're batting a thousand there. They look fantastic. Listen, guys. I, you know, some of these athletic shoes really functional, but they don't look great. I need to, uh, to be in style at all times. Okay. So I'm thrilled, uh, that all birds gives me an opportunity to look good. You know, as I've said before, look good, feel good, play good. That's what we said in football. Same thing with shoes. Uh, just walking around as a dad, all birds checks, all the boxes, functionality, good looks, the whole thing. And I'm thrilled that they are sponsoring the green light pod go check out tree dashers uh, at allbirds.com good looking shoes so before we get into the pod quick announcement on the uh philanthropy front you know i do podcasts i did football i still do charity and i'm very proud of the work we do at the chris long foundation i don't talk about that a lot on this pod but we have a big newsletter coming out today but nicole woody who runs my foundation and is terrific was excited about us posting on social, that sort of thing. I said, Nicole, we have a pod. Let's get this out to my people, my green light listeners, uh, subscribers. We got a real platform here. So let me tell you what, what news we're breaking today. If you're not familiar with the foundation, the work we do is largely, but not limited to the clean water space. We started something called Water Boys about five years ago enlisting the help of my peers in the NFL to pick up the megaphone on the clean water crisis, raise money, raise awareness. Um, We've been able to bring uh, numerous players over to East Africa, to Tanzania, where we do most of our work, to uh, Kenya, where we do some of our work, and show them firsthand what a crisis it is. And anybody who's traveled a lot could tell you that we take water for granted in our country. We've, We've had Basketball players uh, join on and work with us through our Hoops 2.0 program in the NBA. We've enlisted the help of veterans, uh, men and women who have served to raise money and awareness for the cause as well. We've climbed Kilimanjaro every year. That's what brought me to Tanzania in the first place with veterans, with, with, with football players, with influencers, with MMA fighters. We're going to keep doing all that. Uh, But something I've always longed to do was bring our work home. Uh, People always ask me, what are you doing in America? And that's a fair question. Uh, I don't think a lot of people asking that question know how fair of a question it is when they ask it. There are 2 million people in the United States living without clean water. That is a ridiculous number. And it's certainly not the scale of the problems that we see in a Tanzania or a Kenya or many other places you might have visited. 
but that is a staggering number. What's more staggering is that indigenous populations in the United States are 19 times more likely to live without clean water than uh, us white folks. Um, and, you know, black people and Latinx, two times, two and a half times more likely to, uh, to find themselves without access to clean water. So it's certainly a social issue. So while these disparities are very real, we've also worked with uh, Xylem to launch uh, this hometown H2O effort is what we call it, uh, stateside in very rural areas. And we'll continue to serve Americans of all ethnicities in all types of communities. But, you know, the important and glaring statistic here is that, you know, indigenous people are 19 times more likely to live without running water. So we have wanted to work on Navajo Nation for some time, uh, and we're going to start today. My wife and I are donating $50,000 to Dig Deep, which is a partner that we found that's worked extensively on Navajo Nation. And we are matching that $50,000 donation from the foundation as well. So it's going to be 100K uh, going to the nation through Dig Deep. Uh, and this is a place where 30 to 40% of the population do not have access to clean water. It's insane. Uh, all water access needs to be clean. Uh, but a lot of these houses don't even have a faucet. So um, thousands of families directly impacted by COVID right now without water. Not only do we want to work long term there, but people need help right now. And the first part of this gift will be water storage tanks that provide access to people who don't have running water and are directly impacted by COVID. You cannot stop a pandemic without running water. And second, once it's safe to be back, installing in-home systems, we'll be doing that. We hope to uh, continue working on the nation as part of our hometown H2O initiative for the foreseeable future. Uh, and long term, you know, I think it's really important to, to note that we are looking at solutions like deep borehole wells, like the ones we do in East Africa with our partner, WorldServe. WorldServe International, with shout out to John Bongiorno, Doug Pitt, those guys. Uh, those guys have been with me from the start, and they have been a tremendous partner in East Africa. Uh, we are brainstorming on how we can do the same type of long game work that we've done there uh, on Navajo Nation and make a big difference here as well, stateside. So thanks for listening. Pod's coming up here in a second, but if you want to learn more, waterboys.org forward slash hometown H2O. Big newsletter coming out today, but you heard it here first. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Uh, Chris Long, Greenlight Pod. I am, of course, your host, and you are a loyal listener. I appreciate you. I took this show on the road recently. I'm out here. I don't know what you call this. What did they call this back in the day? Like in Oregon Trail days, I'm on the frontier or I'm in the majestic uh, corner of the country that I guess this would be called the Pacific Northwest. Where does the Pacific Northwest stop? I'm in Northwest Montana, as I usually am uh, in the summer in uh, a little place called, oh, I can't tell you where I am because it's like the first rule of Fight Club. If I start telling y'all where I am and you see um, how beautiful my Instagram pictures are, Everybody's going to come up here and fuck the whole serenity thing up. Uh, it's gorgeous. The weather's gorgeous for those of you all down south just breathing in moisture and garbage juice. Like you put garbage in your dumpster and you literally breathe it in because it's 100 degrees and humid. I don't have to deal with that. 80 degrees, no humidity, 
beautiful. It's hoodie weather at night. Uh, I'm up here in Montana. I took this thing on the road. And of course, uh, as you probably noticed, uh, if you are a, lo- a loyal listener, uh, we didn't have a pod early uh, in the week this week on Monday. As has been kind of tradition the past few months, we've been going three a week, scaled down from five a week, which was insane at the beginning of the pandemic. That was as much for me uh, losing my mind sitting around the house feeling I had to do something as it was for you. I hope you've enjoyed all the pods uh, during quarantine. And it's been nice because like we've busted our ass to bring you good guests. I know we had that that kind of uh, highlight reel of June that popped out on Friday because I had to get my 4th of July on. Um, we've had great guests. We've had a good run here and we are picking up steam again. Thanks to you, the listeners, keep it up, keep telling your friends about it. Um, today's going to be a good day. Okay. It's a good pod. I can tell you because I've already done the interview, the main event for this pod. Um, and that is, uh, John Cruck, uh, John Cruck, lifetime 300 hitter Padres, most notably the Phillies, white Sox, ton of swag. Okay dripping with swag love the guy in the 90s uh, i was a first baseman i was pretty decent by the way now he's uh philly's color commentator uh doing nbc philly uh doing all the games up there getting ready for maybe a season maybe not uh some semblance of a season they're pushing hard i'm gonna ask him i did ask him all about that and i can tell you this guy is really insightful but he also has a ton of great stories I don't know what it is about baseball players. I don't know if it's the fact that they sit around a lot and really like uh, get to kick it with their buddies all day, even though they're playing a professional sport. I'm not saying it's easy. It's one of the hardest sports in the world, probably. Uh, not from a toughness standpoint or um, an endurance standpoint, but these guys are incredibly skilled athletes. They do a lot of sitting around, and I'm, I'm wondering, and they have fun. They're on the road a lot. There's no athlete that's better equipped to tell great stories or recall great stories than baseball players, in my opinion. Um, And this guy's got him for days. He told some great stories during the interview. You're definitely going to want to stick around for that. Um, He's a guy you'd want to have a beer with. And uh, let's just say you're going to enjoy it. I'm also going to have Coach Wookie, recurring personality, um, on the pod. My high school baseball coach, former Virginia baseball stud. um, And he's going to kind of chime in and uh and kind of be my my resident baseball expert as he's been lately uh, and hopefully we'll see more of Wookie. you know Wookie's a local dad as well but he loves podcasting so he's pretty good at it he's a natural he's gonna pop on with uh cruck when he pops on so as i was saying we're down to two pods a week uh that's what i meant to say we had three for a while we had five in the beginning of the pandemic two is most manageable for me and honestly that's going to allow me to, to do better work and enjoy my life and my family late this summer. We'll see what happens uh, with the football season, whatever that's going to be. Um, it might be more pods. There, uh, there might be some collaborative stuff that I'm going to do in the fall. The schedule is in flux, guys. It's, like, it's called going with the flow. That's what I tell my son all the time. We're working on going with the flow, uh, my four-year-old Waylon. He likes to plan everything out. I don't know if any of y'all have four-year-olds. But my son, he has to get the like the agenda for the whole fucking day. I'm like, dude, you're four. Okay, go with the flow. I'm going to go with the flow here. Take my own advice. We're doing two pods uh, for, for the time being. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the fall. Also notable today, um, Patrick Mahomes deal. We're going to talk about that. Cliff jumping, my morning jacket, 
uh, a big fat mailbag uh, with my IG crowd. First off, I want to talk about IG and Twitter. Okay. I've been a Twitter guy for a long time. I've done pods, you know, in the stone ages uh, of this, of this green light um, progression here, literally on the thing I'm about to tell you again. So, you know, don't hold me to this because I've done this before. It just feels more real now. I think I'm done with Twitter. And by done with Twitter, I don't mean I'm like done, I'm off it. It's deleted off my phone. So if any of y'all have deleted the app off your phone, it's great. You can't compulsively click on it and get sucked into all the bullshit that exists on that site. Uh, it, it just turned out to be a major um, efficiency drag. It turned out to be a life drag. It turned out to be one of these things that um, just made you more negative, affecting my attention span, you know, the amount of time I waste. I, I called it this last week. It's a drug with no buzz. You know, usually you do a drug, um, you expect a buzz because, you know, that's what addiction is. You know, like something feels good, you want to keep doing it. There are millions of people that just keep doing the same shit over and over again on that site on that website, as I call it, and don't get any, any good feelings, I don't think. It's literally a drug that just makes you feel bad, and you keep coming back to it. It's like stubbing your toe a million times, and you don't stop doing it. You just stub your fucking toe on purpose. I mean, it's just death by a thousand paper cuts. And uh, anytime you log on, there's no shortage of bullshit. And this isn't one of those things where I'm just heaping it on the people, the bots, the Russian bots, the people who are in my mentions. This is about everybody on Twitter. I'm talking about people that agree with me uh, politically or ideologically. Uh, this is people that I, I wouldn't care to, to talk to on the side of the road because we're just that different as far as what we believe um, and the ideologies we uh, subscribe to. Everybody, pretty much everybody's annoying on that site. I'll say 5% of the accounts that, um, that I see on my timeline are accounts I'm excited to, uh, to hear from or see. Uh, this is a bit of a, I'm going Christopher McCandless on this thing of into the wild fame uh, on a much smaller scale when it comes to social media. Catch me on IG, catch me um, on my IG story. That's going to be the new mechanism for me getting my thoughts out. And uh, I will still promote my pod and, you know, drop an occasional jewel on Twitter. Uh, if I feel so inclined, I'll download the app and say something here or there. And I don't know what it's going to be like in football season, but for now, I'm on vacation. I need that shit out of my life. It's a drug with no buzz. It's not real life. People don't act like they act on Twitter in real life. You know how many times I've had people cuss me out, call me names on Twitter? Uh, that doesn't happen to me in real life. Maybe it's because I'm 6'4", 250, covered in tattoos, and can likely whoop your fucking ass. Now, Instagram's been good. Uh, I did post a, a video yesterday of me cliff diving. I want to address that really quickly. That is not my second career. I know that a lot of people were like in the comments, hey, great cliff, cliff dive, really well done. I'm a cliff jumper. It's different. You know, cliff diving would, would constitute going head first, in my opinion, into the water. Um, I'm not that ballsy. I don't do gainers. I don't do flips. Maybe I'll get there. But I found this cliff up here. It's about 50 feet high, and I jumped off it. I've been staring at this cliff for 11, 12 years as an NFL player, and I always was like, man, like, what if I land wrong? Like, what, what if I hit the bottom and tear my ACL? 
what if I get a concussion? You know, it's, you can only get so many concussions. What if I separate my shoulder? I'll be the biggest idiot in the world. Like they'll take my money. I got nobody to answer to anymore. I'll be doing more stuff like uh, jumping off cliffs. And uh, I got to tell you, pretty scary. You kind of pull up by jet ski, of course. You pull up to this uh, or your parents drive your 35-year-old ass um, to the cliff like, like mine did. Great parents. Uh, they waited for me to jump as well. You, you, you come up. Uh, you swim to shore. There's this you know, rock scramble that you kind of got to snake your way up the, up the side of the hill. And when you get to the top, it's one of those things, anybody who's jumped off something high and, you know, it's, it's only year one of me being a cliff jumper. So who am I, you know, to speak on it with authority, but once you're up there, you're up there and, uh, the climb up can be pretty sketchy to wherever you're jumping. I got to tell you, it looked way higher when I got up there and uh, I'm not a big fan of waiting a long time before I do something like that. So I had to just look down and go. And then the pressure of like my mom watching and my dad watching, like A, don't get hurt, don't die. But B, don't look like a little bitch up there, like just thinking it over for five minutes. The bottom of my feet when I hit the water, uh, I thought they were going to be bruised. Now, that's not the case. Uh, It wasn't painful in any other way. But uh, it felt good to conquer a fear. I don't like heights, uh, which is funny because, you know, I, I've done some climbing and that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I don't like jumping off. I like jumping off of high things, but it just doesn't make sense to me. I think like anybody else jumping off of high stuff. I was reading about it. You got to go check this Instagram page out called Cliff Media. I followed it for a little bit. It's just a bunch of like literally dudes that look like Brian Brayman jumping off of high structures. And if you're an Eagles fan, you know who Brian Brayman is. Brian Brayman is a poster child to me for somebody who does like a gainer off of an oil rig into the Gulf of Mexico, like a hundred feet in the air, like just white dude, long hair, board shorts, um, maybe lives in a van, but not like because he has no other choice, but because he's like, I'm just about that life. You know, Tevas, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know what cliff divers listen to, but I would imagine slightly stupid could be in the rotation. These guys have balls so big. You got to put them in wheelbarrows. Um, like, uh, like Stan's dad on, on South park cliff media, go check that, that feed out, dude. These guys are nuts. Um, way, way ballsier than football players. (laughs) I've seen some dudes jumping out of like, uh, you know, jumping off a crane a hundred feet in the air. 50 feet felt like a lot. I'm imagining the dude that set the world record at 192 feet. Insanity. Insanity. Hitting the, the, the water at like 75 miles an hour. So I'm going to stay in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, don't give me too much credit. Not a cliff diver, just a cliff jumper. So we talked about Twitter. We talked about uh, cliff jumping. Patrick Mahomes, real quick before we get into uh, John Cruck and then into a mailbag. You know, everybody saw the big eye-popping numbers, okay? And we do this sometimes. And I was a victim of this thing too. You see it, you say, holy shit, Patrick Mahomes, a deal that's going to be in effect till 2031, hopefully three presidents from now. Uh, I'll be 46. There will definitely be sex robots. The world might be ending. Like, 2031 is going to be, I don't know what it's going to be like. Like Miami could be underwater. I don't know. 
Uh, but Patrick Mahomes, if you believe uh, your eyes uh, on ESPN.com yesterday morning, is going to be a chief in 2031. It's a $503 million deal is what they listed at and touted as the largest in sports history. But it's not as steep as you think, you know, especially early on. And we'll delve into that. And Bill Barnwell, who wrote a really, whew, that article is, Bill Barnwell has a huge brain, man. And I'm not great with contracts, admittedly, but I'll take a stab at this thing. He mentioned that the Texans and Cowboys might be actually happy with what they saw out of this contract. And uh, I'll talk about why. You're definitely not going to see the, the final few years of this deal under these terms. Um, and Bill put it well. He'd have to be kind of somewhere in the middle. He'd have to be good enough to get all his bonuses and hit all these benchmarks, but not good enough to demand a new deal because that's likely what's going to happen. People are talking about 2025 when he might get a new deal. Again, $503 million is eye-popping, but the guarantees are in the hundreds, a measly $183 million. Um, I haven't looked at the Kansas City tax laws or whatever, but uh, it's a lot of money no matter what. And, uh, you know, people are comparing it to Mike Trout's deal. Uh, it's not a realistic comparison. Um, all that's guaranteed. Um, 141, actually, of Mahomes' contract is guaranteed. The real comps here, I'll get to in a minute, but I think if you look closely at this, this deal, it's actually kind of team-friendly. It's, it's a win for everybody. Looks good for Patrick Mahomes. It is good for Patrick Mahomes. It's good for the team. I'll get into that in a minute. And uh, it's good for the agent, okay? Um, Lee Steinberg. We can't fall for the okie doke of calling it the greatest contract in history. Already a team-friendly deal by calling it that um, because it makes them look like, hey, we pay. And they do pay. But the reality is uh, it's not what Mahomes is going to get. 140 guaranteed. He, re-up, he, he might re-up in five years with the TV money that comes in. Things are going to be different in five years. He won't see the end of the deal because of the things we mentioned. And uh, you know he'd have to be probably in the middle, which is highly unlikely. Um, to see him play that out. Also, this forecast that uh, Reed and Veach stay put, um, you know, and I, I think that's a a possibility, uh, you know, for the next decade. But I don't know. Now, on the player friendly side, it does seem like they have to act two years ahead of time because of the guarantees and the way they kick in, and uh, and that's good for Pat. Now, I don't know, you know, how that in practice actually helps him, but. Um, you know, the guarantees are structured in a way that he's very well protected. Uh, you can compare this contract. Uh, I think, you know, I'm not into the cross sport comparisons for the reasons I mentioned the guarantees, um, and also the, the unlikelihood that it, that it even plays out, but you have to compare it to the six guys who read up after the rookie wage scale changed, um, Tannehill, Luck, Wentz, Goff, Newton, Bortles. Um, when you look at this thing. He's only making $14 million more than Goff did the first four years of his re-up adjusted for cap inflation. And that's Jared Goff. And we know how we feel about Patrick Mahomes. We know how we feel about Jared Goff. I'm not a you know, dump on Jared Goff guy. I think he's a fine player. He's, he's, he, he got paid a lot of money. I think that you know, we'll find out in the near future who he really is, who McVay really is. But it's safe to say that, and I'm not, you know, people like to do this, McVay ain't Reed yet and Goff ain't Mahomes. Um, and, and, you know, there's a $14 million difference between the first couple of years of, of that deal adjusted for cap inflation. There's not a big difference. It, it, it could be argued that it should be astronomically higher when looking at those two players, Michael Vick, 
at a deal 10 years ago, it did not create a precedent. It was huge. It was kind of record-breaking in length and money. Um, you know, it did not set a precedent. I don't know if this one's going to set a precedent either. I think some people are looking at it. And my first reaction was like, what does this mean in the big picture? Ooh, look at $500 million. What's, what's, what's this going to do for, you know, I, I fell into that shit too. I'm not a great contract guy. Okay. When I played, you know, I paid an agent good money to do a good job. You know, I'm not one of these do your own deal guys. Uh, and it worked out well for me. Play well, get paid, uh, try to maximize your earnings while you're, while you're in there. Um, not a ton of first rounders in the history of the league have won a Super Bowl this early, um, which is actually even surprising when you look at the list. Patrick Mahomes doesn't have a lot of peers when it comes to his early successes. There's not going to be another Patrick Mahomes here real soon. Even with Lamar's success, he's got to play that out another couple years, uh, which people will tell you all, all sorts of reasons why that might be unlikely. You know, I, th I think that you know, as much as Pat is dependent on Andy Reid, I think that you know, Lamar might be even more dependent on, um, on uh, a Greg Roman and that system. Um, so, you know, another Pat Mahomes ain't coming along tomorrow. I don't think we're going to start seeing this for every quarterback that gets paid. Um, but I do know this. He's got Andy. He's got a dynamic scheme. He's got a great football atmosphere. It makes Kansas City a really attractive destination for everybody and free agency for years to come. Um, and not just like, a, hey, I'm coming in on a one-year deal. This is attractive for me. It was like that anyways with Pat under center. But knowing that he's going to be there the next five years, you know, anytime you get more Pat Mahomes is a good thing uh, for attracting more players. And he'll probably get read up before this even expires. So uh, I, I would look for another big deal for him in the next five years. Um, and TV money will change the game. So that's that. Let's get to John Kruk uh, and uh, Coach Wookie. Okay, so this is great. I got my high school baseball coach, Wookie, uh, as, as Greenlight Pod listeners know. And uh, John has joined us, uh, the legend himself, somebody who uh, I, I coveted his baseball cards in the 90s. I thought he had the best swag on the field. Uh, John Crook, <laughs> how you doing, man? Where you at? I'm down in Florida, home, waiting to see uh, when I'm allowed to go up to Philly for the start of the season. So if yeah. they started, who knows, Chris, what they're going to do. We're definitely going to get into that. I got so I got a group text of about fifteen buddies back home, and sometimes they're like uh, a question farm for my guests. And I said, I got John Crook on today. Uh, they said I got a buddy from the South Side of Chicago, and he got real excited. He said, "Ask him about how he retired." I didn't know you retired this way. Is this true that you kind of impromptu said I'm out? Well, it was it it wasn't impromptu. It was a it was a uh, it, it took a while to. To get this so we had uh jim abbott was on our team and uh they all kept talking about trading so i said you know if they trade jim abbott that means that they've given up on the season or you know they don't think we can make a run and so i said you know my knees were done and so i told jim i said if you get traded uh i'm gonna retire well we're on the bus going from we landed in boston and he gets a call that he got traded so we go up to his room in boston and had a few beers with him, me and Ozzie Guillen and Kurt McCaskill and a couple other guys were up there and Rob Ventura. But Jim asked me, he said, are you going to retire? I said, yeah, I'm done. I was planning on being done at that moment. Mm. <laughs> These damn dumbasses talked me into, hey, let's figure this out. Let's figure out a good way for you to retire. So he said, how about you just get a hit and you walk off the field? 
I said, yeah, I can do that. I can, I can get on board with that. I didn't get a hit in Boston. Right. Three games, no hits. So then I go to Baltimore. And, uh, you know, I grew up in West Virginia, a couple hours from Baltimore, about, you know, two and a half hours, three hours from Baltimore. So my parents came down. And my dad doesn't mince words. So Friday afternoon, I met with my mom and dad, you know, and uh, some other relatives were there. I said, you know, hey, if I get a hit tonight, I'm walking off the field. I'm not hurt, but I'm done playing. And my dad, in all his infinite wisdom, he said, well, you better get the effort tonight, the mother effort tonight, because it's supposed to be hot as hell all weekend. I don't want to sit out in this damn sun. Uh, I didn't get a hit Friday. And I didn't get a hit Saturday. So now I'm like, man, if I have to go back to Chicago, that's a hell of a long drive back to West Virginia. So I got to get this hit today. So the closer on the Orioles at that time was a former teammate of mine, Doug Jones. So I asked Jonesy Saturday, I said, hey, who's pitching Sunday? He said, uh, uh, Scott Erickson. I said, good guy. He said, oh, yeah, great guy. You'd like him. I said, tell him to throw me a nothing fastball. I got to try to get one more hit so I can get the hell out of here, man. So he said, all right, if I'll tell him. And if he come down to dugout, he said, your first at bat, he said, if I come down to dugout, tip my hat, that means he's going to do it. Man, I'm walking up the on-deck circle, Chris. I, I can't find him. And I'm like, God, I got to try to do this on my own, and this ain't going to work. Yeah, that's how bad it was. Yeah. So uh, so I, I, I'm almost to the batter's box, and Jonesy comes running down. He's tipping his hat. And I'm like, oh, thank God. And he did. He threw me a BP fastball. I got the crap jammed out of me. Hit a little bloop over Cal Ripken's head, and that was it. You sent him out. I went home. I actually on a bloop. Got, on a bloop. Yeah, it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a rocket, that's for sure, but that's all I had left. But I actually got home and watched, like, the last three innings at home. <laughs> and, but I heard the, the White Sox announcers, you know, I had the West Virginia State Flower, the satellite dish, and uh, so I, I watched uh, the last few innings on TV, and the announcers were Ken Harrelson, and, you know, they were saying, you know, we don't know what happened. It looked like he was limping. Uh, I think he pulled a hamstring, whatever. And I – because I forgot to tell people. They had to call this kid up that waited for six days for me to get a hit so he could join the roster. And That's every amazing. day, every day he'd come, hey, thinks today's the day? Nope. I, I'm going to be honest with you. It ain't going to be today either. I, I, you just knew, you know? So. Yeah, but did you ever fantasize about like one of these storybook retire? I think that's a storybook as it comes because you got on your terms in the biggest way. Yeah, and you know, when I got to first base, the first base coach didn't know. Papa Jack, Ron Jackson, didn't know. And he said, where are you going? I said, I'm done, man. I'm retiring. <laughs> and Rafael Palmero's like, no, he's trying to talk me into staying. He said, you're hitting 300, whatever. I'm like, yeah, but it got to the point, Chris, where if I was on first base, I prayed no one hit one in the gap. Right. So I didn't have to run. And that's how right. bad it got. And uh, so as I'm talking to Rafael, you know, I'm thinking, well, Cal's in the middle of this street. You know, he's closing in on this street, to, you know, the, the all-time games list streak. And so I thought, well, let me get to second and talk to Cal. Cal <laughs> and I were talking while the third out was made. So I go in, the, you know, I go in, Ozzy Guillen, I go in the clubhouse, done, whatever. And Ozzy has a bottle of champagne because Ozzy and I, I, I've known Ozzy since he was 16. We came up through the Padres organization together. He had a bottle of champagne. We toasted. I I don't even think I showered. I just took my crap off, put it in a bag, and went home. <laughs> but usually, usually you would shower after a game. No, Sometimes. No shower pills. How prevalent were shower pills? That's what we called in the NFL when a guy's like, 
he tries to sneak out of the locker room after a game without taking a shower. We call that a shower pill. No, I took a shower pill. Yeah. Well, we always showered. But like I, when I was in high school, they made us like football, basketball, baseball, whatever. But not baseball because we had to play at a different place. But we always had to shower after practice. We always showered. I, these guys now, man, they they're out of there quick. They, I mean, so, so they're so you're calling into question the hygiene of 2020 baseball players. I know they all because when they get on the bus, they all smell good. So I don't know how that works. I don't know. I, that's I a different like kind of shower. That's where you, that's where you spray the cologne uh, yeah. so heavily that people can't smell your musk. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that was the only day that I didn't shower after the game. It's good to clear that up. That makes me feel, you know, you say never meet your heroes. It's great to meet you and know that you had good hygiene as a baseball player. Wookie, did you shower as a baseball player at UVA? That's how I got my nickname. No, you got your nickname because no, of that hair be, on your chest. Exactly, because I was 17 years old, show up first day at UVA for practice, take my shirt off, and some senior across the locker room goes, <laughs> and he's like, hey, Wookie the Rookie, why don't you hop in the shower? And it was done from there. I can remember the first time you went on vacation with my folks while you were a coach in high school, and you took your shirt off on the dock, and my dad told you to take the sweater off. It's 80 degrees <laughs> <laughs> Um Hey, John, you know, like the current events with baseball, you're saying you're not sure about the season, but the the, the main thing they got to do if they want it to happen is they need a really efficient testing uh, situation, which the 113-page guideline for 2020, which I did not read admittedly, I don't think I've read 113 pages of anything since high school, says that they're going to test every other day. You think the MLB could pull that part of it off? I don't know. I think that's what the players are questioning right now because, uh, you know, they, they've had – I know Freddie Freeman from people I've talked to in Atlanta said that he's in real, he, he was in real bad shape uh, after he got tested positive. But, you know, the Giants canceled practice today because their test results didn't come back in time or something. So they didn't want to push it. Uh, yeah. You know, I read, I read today where Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the Nationals, is even discussing having the Nationals not play this year just out of wow. fear. Uh, so that would be devastating. And, you know, I, 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 some of the players have opted out, and I don't blame them. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, though, you know, if, if Mike Trout, it, it would be like, uh, you know, Tom Brady. Yeah. Ron James opting out of the season. If, if Mike Trout decides to opt out, and if Mike does, I don't blame him a bit because his wife's pregnant with their first child. And um, so I, I know that's a fear of his uh, moving forward with this coronavirus. And, and I think – but I think if uh, – Look, Freddie Freeman's a big enough name, but yeah. if Mike Trout decides, you know, I'm opting out of the season, that could be a that, that could be a red flag to Major League Baseball. I say, you know what, we might want to think about shutting it down. Yeah, you know what? I don't know if they could survive the Mount, the Mike Trout thing so far. I mean, uh, Nick Markakis, David Price, Felix Hernandez, Zim, Ryan Zimmerman uh, has opted out, which. You know, uh, Sean Doolittle's on the fence. I know Sean's always very, very vocal about you know. Uh, players' rights and that sort of thing. And this is one of those situations where I know it's got to be tough. If I was a football player this year, um, if I had any ounce of wanting to come back as a player, and I've been out of the game for a year and I almost came back last year, I wouldn't do it. There's zero chance I'd come back. If a team called me this year, I don't want to play in front of no fans. I don't want to risk my family's safety. I don't want to risk my safety. So it's a tough situation. How about, like, I mean, teams that are in the middle of an abbreviated spring training, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's condensed. And then teams are missing, like the Nats uh, and some other team had to cancel on Monday because they didn't get their test back from Friday. If you lose three, four days, is that a deal that you can overcome? 
as the other teams are kind of charging ahead? No, not this quick. Uh, you know, it's a three-week spring training, basically, because – and look, the guys were hitting. I know I've talked to a lot of players. They were hitting. They've been throwing. And, but you can't simulate uh, what you're going to see once the season starts. And I, you know, I know that uh, I read today the Yankees and the Mets are going to play like two exhibition games in New York uh, somewhere. Uh, but, you know, I, I, the thing that, that's disturbing to me, it's not disturbing, it's, it's sad, but like, you know, the Phillies' best pitcher, Aaron Nola, Right now, he tested positive for coronavirus. He has to wait 14 days. Mm. He's not going to be ready. I don't care how much he's been throwing. I don't care what he's been doing. He's In 14 days, he will not be ready for the season to start. So that hampers the Phillies right there because they had a player tested positive. You know, Freddie Freeman, Nick Marcakis, you're taking away two huge bats in the middle of that lineup and of the Braves. So it's not fair to the Braves either. So I don't know how the commissioner is going to go about, you know, what happens if, uh, you know, X amount of players test positive on a team. Do, do they have to forfeit those games right. they're, they're supposed to play, or do they make them back up at the end of the season like they they do if there's rainouts or snowouts or whatever? It's going to be a it's going to be a tough decision for Major League Baseball moving forward to just to have them decide how they're going to handle if you know more than one player tests positive for a certain team during the season. How they're going to go about uh, making those games back up if they can't play them. So about, you know, the, the pitcher getting, you know, testing positive, if you're a manager, are you going to rethink how you travel your pitchers versus your position players? I mean, is there a scenario where you quarantine your pitchers or you fly them private? Yeah, because Bruce Arians, when we had him on the pod, the football coach down there in Tampa said, I might quarantine a third quarterback, you know, because I don't want him in the building. Yeah, I, I, you know what? The, the problem is, is not many teams have five good starters. So, uh you know, that's a scary part. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's going to be interesting. I know that, like, the announcers aren't allowed to travel with the team. The only people are allowed to travel are, are the coaches, players, uh, limited front office, uh, you know, and then the strength coach and dietitian, I guess, or whatever. But, uh, uh, you know, what the NBA is doing down here in Orlando, you know, they're going to quarantine, but, like, they call it the bubble. Yeah. Uh, where, they're just going to stay there and play all the games there. But, you know, when you're traveling – and I look, I get it. They charter and all that. But can they really get those planes as clean as they want to get them after, you know, some other people have flown in it, that non-players have flown in it like two hours before or three hours before, and then they come back and teams have to go somewhere. I know a lot of teams are skeptical about coming to Florida because the tests have really oh, ramped up down yeah. here. Uh, you know, I, I just think you players are smarter than I was. Like, we wouldn't even have questioned. We might not even have known there was a coronavirus when right. I was right because we were so oblivious to life outside of our little, uh, you know, our little capsule we were in. That these guys know now, and I, I think that uh, if if I was Rob Manford for Major League Baseball, I think I would sit down with uh, a lot of the key players and do a call like this, a Zoom thing. At, I'm clueless about, but uh, <laughs> so are we. I mean, I just started doing the Zoom shit as soon as uh, COVID hit. Zoom, whoever started Zoom uh, is making bank. I know they're not happy about the pandemic, but uh, it's worked out well for them. How about though, like you mentioned the bubble? I, I see the planes is an issue, but each city's different. And, yeah. you know, each you, you could have, you know, a franchise in a city that doesn't have any spike of cases, and then uh, the next city could be 
And, you know, you've got guys with families. You're going to expect, you know, wives not to take their kids to school if they have school or, you know, not go out to get, get something to eat. That's a lot of guys uh, in a bunch of different cities. And you can't really plan for which city's worse. And it's not an equal playing field that way. So we'll see. Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I know uh, when the players get to the hotel, they have to stay in the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. And I was just talking to Matt Barnes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and for those of y'all that can't see John and uh, are listening, uh, he, he's laughing because, you know, I, I had this conversation with Matt Barnes. I said, you know, it's a bubble with the NBA, but there's something called Tinder that uh, I don't know if John's heard of this app, but Tinder is the biggest threat to the uh, the basketball bubble. And it might be a big threat to uh, baseball quarantine as well. How about pitching, catching up or hitting, catching up to the pitching? Because you mentioned hitting. There's no way to replicate uh, live arm. Uh, you know, on, on a field, like, is there going to be a, a, a big gap in the skill level of a pitcher picking it up from square one and a hitter? I, I think it's going to be tougher on the hitters because, look, they're going to face their own pitchers. Uh, you know, I, I know, I mean, you, I guess you heard that, uh, you know, uh, Giancarlo Stanton hit a line drive off his teammate's head the other day to Masahiro Tanaka. Uh, he's in concussion protocol now, I hear, but, uh, you know, when you're facing your buddies, your teammates, there's not an adrenaline rush whatsoever. It's yeah. just like, I can't wait for this crap to be over. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's when the game started in spring training. That to me is when you got your, uh, you know, the adrenaline started, your heart started beating a little harder and stuff. I don't think you can get that. So they're, they're going to have to find that adrenaline and how to control it. And, and day one of, of the season, which you know, normally they have 30, 30 something games to prepare for that opening day. Now they have none. So it's going to be tough. Well, it's going to be extra hard for the Astros because I don't think you get beaned in, uh, in, in, in practice and in inner squad scrimmages. And you can't charge a mound this year. Yeah, that, that was my next question. Okay, like you're a first baseman, first yeah. off. Are you not going to talk to people on the other teams? I think this is working right into baseball's hand. No more stolen bases because a lot of the sabermetricians don't think the stolen base is a high average play. Even though if you're a great catcher, you only throw out about 20, 25% of the runners who steal. So 75% of the time you're really safe. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do. You're not allowed to hold a guy on uh, because you have to have six foot social distancing. I, I don't know how that's going to work. Someone said at the, Someone tried to tell me once that he heard that the first baseman's going to have to like play behind the guy, and then yeah. I'm like, I, I, yeah, it's going to be tough. You got, I feel like you have to trust that that team is no different than your team. Like the the variation in in infection within the team has to be. I mean, it's it's kind of random. So I mean, you're trusting the guy on first just as much as you're trusting your buddy in the dugout. Exactly. And so you're saying no charging the mound this year. We won't yeah. see it. Yeah, that's no charging. This is what I've heard. No charging the mound. Players aren't allowed to spit. Um, if you spit, I don't know what happens. But what about seeds? Can't can't spit. No spitting. Nothing. You can have gum, but you can't. Oh. spit. What uh, do you do with your gum when you're done chewing it? They want guys to swallow their gum. Throw it in the garbage can after between innings, I guess. But I heard that the bench players who aren't in the starting lineup that they have to sit in the bleachers. Oh, that's wild. Because of the social distancing thing. I think there's only like, I heard that the, the manager, bench coach, pitching coach, hitting coach are the only ones allowed in the dugout and a trainer. The rest of the guys have to be sitting up in the uh, bleachers six feet apart. 
How do you meet with a pitcher? How do, when they call out the the manager to say whatever he says to the pitcher, which I always wonder what's going on out there. Like, what are, what are they doing? I, I you know, I, I'm assuming an earpiece, maybe yeah. that uh, yeah. you know can't get on the mound, right? Six feet. How are you going to talk to your pitcher without, yeah. with no, especially with no fans? They're going to hear everything. And all these coaches have rabbit ears. You know that. Yeah, especially those baseball coaches. So. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing in football, the fans are going to hear a lot of motherfucks that they wouldn't normally hear, which is very <laughs> colorful uh, game day experience and very realistic uh, and trash talk. That's another thing. Y'all don't have it as much, but you're going to hear some really ugly things said to each other on a football field. Y'all's problem is going to be everybody is accustomed to being on each other's shit. And now it's going to be even more. How about the rules? Well, there's three main rules that jumped out to me. The DH thing. Uh, there was the, there's the pitching, uh, three hitters at a time. You can't, you can't change pitchers that quickly. And then extra innings runner on second. Is there one that you hate? Is there one that you're like, this is a good idea? Uh, I like the pitching one. Uh, As a hitter, I bet you do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially like if you look at how the Phillies lineup might be constructed, Harper could hit third, Hoskins hit fourth or Rio Muto could hit third, Harper fourth. and and Reese Hoskins. So what are you going to do if you're a manager? You have to bring in a guy to face him, has to face all three of them. You bring in a lefty for Harper, but then he has to face Rio Muto and, and Hoskins? Or do you bring in a righty and hope that, uh, you know, your righty can, can combat Harper? I, the, the one I hate is the DH, the universal DH. I, there's some about the National League game that was pure. Uh, there's strategy involved. I mean, I'm a dummy. I am clueless at a lot of things in this world, but I think I could be an American League manager. Yeah, <laughs> I really do. Uh, you know, shots fired. <laughs> you know, all these managers I talk to, American League. You know, once you make the lineup, you know, you're especially if your pitcher's dealing, you, you ain't got a whole lot to do. Right. You know, National League. If the game's close and your pitcher's dealing, do I pinch hit for him here? Do I let him go? Uh, it, there's a lot of strategy involved in the National League, double switches and all that junk. But uh, the thing I don't understand is, like, is the universal DH this year, like, what the hell does that got to do with the coronavirus? I mean, it's not like uh, it's going to speed the game up any. Normally a pitcher goes up and he's either three, three pitches and he's out or he bunts in the first two pitches. What about, what, what about the schedule? Some, do you think they, they botched that thing? Because everybody's kind of like, like I, I talked to a Cardinals fan, you know, because I played in St. Louis for a long time. I got buddies there. They're like, the cards have to go to Milwaukee like a bunch of times. Like it's criminal. And then uh, you talk about the Nats, who are the defending champs. They, got, they get the Orioles and I think it was the Blue Jays a whole bunch, and the Braves get them half as much. So how do you distribute a 60-game schedule equitably? Yeah, that that's the biggest thing I, I think with the you know the, the moving forward for this year is is uh, is it really fair to to all these teams? Uh, you know, if, if you have to play the the Blue, Blue Jays have a ton of young talent. The Orioles are rebuilding. We all know that. But if you have to play them and then your opponent, you know, let's say the Phillies have to play them and then the Braves have to play. Uh, you know, the Yankees and Red Sox more. Is that really fair to the, to the, to the Atlanta Braves? No. Uh, so I, there's no way they can ever get this schedule thing right. Uh, and it just, I mean, for 60 games too, if it's 100 and, 162 games, you can overcome a tougher interleague schedule because you have that many. But, you know, if you go into New York and Boston for, for five games or six games and they beat you up pretty good, 
not only are they going to you're going to lose those five or six games, your pitching staff is going to take a beating with the offenses that those teams have. And that, and that's a big, big thing moving forward because there's not going to be many off days. And so pitchers aren't going to get as much rest. So that that's the biggest thing with me is how they're going to, you know, and people have asked me, say, well, if you really, if you win a world series, is it really winning a world series? Well, hell yeah, it is. I mean, you're going to get a trophy, right? And a big ass. Yeah. Yeah, and every season has different challenges, and I've heard NBA players talk about this. I mean, like, this is going to be one of the most challenging seasons if they make this happen. I'm sure in baseball it's going to be, especially for some position players. Uh, I mean, pitching's one thing. I, I, I get that, and I'm not, I'm, you know, you guys understand that better than I do. But, I mean, a catcher, 66 days, 60 games, certain positions, it's going to be a physical grind, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be very, very physical demand for the, for the, uh, for the catchers, especially. Uh, you know, that, that's where you hope you can find. Now, the good thing is that they have expanded rosters. So the Phillies, Phillies, and most teams will be able to carry three catchers at least. Yeah. Uh, so it's like you said, you might want to get that third catcher in quarantine until he's absolutely needed because, of you know, the starter, starting catcher goes down and the backup, you have to, you know, double switch for him or something. You know, it, yeah. it makes it, it makes an interesting situation moving forward for the catchers. But uh, the Phillies have a horse behind the plate, so I, I kind of enjoy that. Uh, JT Real Muto, I'm sure if you ask him, he, he's going to catch all 60, but uh, you know, I think they have to be smart with him. But, uh, you know, the, the way the catcher position is now, the way they protect him with collisions and all that stuff, they still get beat up, don't get me wrong, but they can play more games, uh, you know, and, and they become like an offensive force. You know, guys like Buster Posey, uh, Yadi Molina, guys like that. Yadi, yes. And guys like that, you know, they're they're an integral part of the team offensively, not only defensively, but offensively. And so, you know, with 60, 60 games in 66 days, you know, how much are you going to afford having a guy that basically, you know, can crash for the Cubs too? They hit in the middle of their lineup. Um, you know, it's going to be tough, tough on them to see how many games they can play. And it take you take a big hit from your starter to your backup. Hey, I know Wookie has a good question here coming up, but while you're on Yachty, you mentioned Yachty. I, I, ne- I was always jealous of the Cardinals because we sucked at football and they were really good and it's baseball heaven and nobody gave a shit about us. But there was one guy I had to love and it was Yachty. Is he a Hall of Famer, guys? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, I love him. Not even a question. He is. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I've gotten the opportunity to talk to the Cardinals pitchers and they talk about how much he means to them. And one day I was at uh, down in Jupiter at their spring training, and you know I got there like six thirty, and I see him coming off the field. So I asked uh, uh, one of their pitchers. I said, "What what was he doing out here?" He said, "He comes at, as soon as the sun comes up. He's there every day, and he has every catcher in camp, and they work." He yeah. said he wants to do it before any media gets there because he doesn't want like you know the media to know and. Uh, you know, bother them or whatever. He just wants to go out there and work with his young catchers and the and the backup catchers. Yeah. And, uh, Brian Pena was a backup catcher one year. Brian was telling me, he said, he goes, I learned more in the first week I was in Cardinal Spring training with Yachty than I had my whole life catching. He said, he's a genius. I said, well, probably why he's going to be a Hall of Famer without doubt. I, I don't think it's any question. There you go. No. So you met, we were talking earlier about equitable schedule and uh and you know would the world series count you know without the all-star game determining home field advantage how who gets home field advantage this year maybe they'll play it in a neutral spot i, huh? I think i think that's what yeah. i would do for the world series playing a neutral neutral ballpark 
coin toss, decide who the home team is or best record or whatever. But again, that's not fair because of the difference in, in scheduling this year. But I think they should play it at a neutral spot. That way they can contain the players, you know, in one hotel and, uh, you know, they're not traveling back and forth because how bad would that be? Yeah. Game four of the World Series and your starting pitcher that day tests positive for coronavirus. I think they have to do something to protect the players. And I think at a, uh, you know, one, one place, uh, you know, central and that way they can, you know, each team can have their own hotel or they can just major league baseball can rent out the whole hotel for just baseball people and doctors and whatever to test these guys. And so they can uh, hopefully stay safe and not miss any games during the playoffs or, or, or world series. I think it'd be cool if they picked some really exotic neutral site. Like, you know, how UFC did Fight Island, you know, just yeah. do something just totally off the wall. I don't know if it's a cornfield or one of those really nice. We used to come down to Jacksonville a lot and play those Jacksonville teams, our high school. There's plenty of great baseball fields down there in Florida. If Florida is doing any better by the time World Series comes around. Wookie, you had a, 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 a connection here, a mutual friend, maybe. You want to you wanna ask him about that one? Yeah, so we – so. When Chris and Kyle played at St. Anne's Belfield, I coached with a guy named Larry Mitchell who used to pitch for the Phillies. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he tells me this funny story about you in spring training that I've always wanted to know, which was you'd show up to, you know, all the ballparks that got, you know, the, the all home plates kind of come together in a clover and you can just walk from, you know, game to game that's going on. Yeah. And he told me this story that you used to like to, you would basically go up, tell an on deck hitter, hey, back up, bub. I'm going to go take a bat. You'd go up, you'd rake a single. You'd stand on first, pinch runner, you, somebody come in, run. You'd go to the next park, step up, rake a double, get somebody to pinch hit, and you'd get like six at-bats in the span of 20 minutes. Was that true? Yeah. I, I went over there one day to our minor league complex, and I got, I think, 20-something at-bats in like an hour. <laughs> it was great because, it, it, you know, just I, I literally would hit, run to a different field, hit, run to a different field, hit. Like, I, I was worn out. Sometimes I'd go to a different field and hope that the other team was hitting so I could take a break. But, yeah, I used to do that. I, I probably did that two or three times every spring training. I'd take one day where I just I, – I need at-bats, so I'm going to go run around and take these at-bats. Uh, I, I felt bad for some of the kids, but, uh, you know, have a beer. Have <laughs> Not a beer that bad. <laughs> yeah, I, you I, needed I, your at-bats. I get it. Yeah, they. I mean, they got plenty though. Those those that yeah, minor league stuff, on. man. That, they get too many at bats, I think. But it was a blast. I mean, it was tiring, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. And then the other thing that stands out to me about your, I mean, obviously, three hundred hitter. I, I idolized you as a hitter, but you had this streak of two thousand six hundred and eighty-two at bats between getting hit by pitch and, and the first time in your major league career huh. and your second time. And it, I, it might still be a record. And my question is, 2,682 at-bats between getting hit by a pitch. How Man. do you do it? How, do you, how is that even possible? Is it, is it fear, John? That, 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 <laughs> you know, feet of a ballerina, man. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I used to get drilled a lot in the minor leagues. Uh, and I, apparently I just learned how to get the hell out of the way. Uh, <laughs> You know, someone said, how come you didn't let that hit you? I said, well, I thought I had a better chance of hitting a double than I did. You know, what the hell am I going to do yeah. when I get my first? It's not like I'm going to steal second. You know? <laughs> What's the most painful spot to get hit? Uh, I got hit. I got – it grazed my shoulder and hit me right here in, in, in winter ball. That one hurt. 
that one that one opened me up a little bit. I didn't like getting hit on the ass in high school because that's that kind of like pain that makes you like you know they get you right on the the side of the butt cheek. I'm I'm not a big fan of that. I never no. got hit in the face. I got hit in the ribs once. Uh, actually, a former teammate of mine hit me in the ribs. So apparently, we weren't great teammates. But uh, <laughs> uh, he—I mean, that one hurt. I, it, it felt like the thing just impaled me, and I got—I uh, got hit in the kneecap. Uh, oh! And it fractured my kneecap, and, and it was—you know—it's the last day of the season in minor league. So I'm thinking, all right, I'll be home by August or, or you know October first. I'll be playing golf with my buddies and. Last day of the season, my last at bat, the guy hits me right in the kneecap. I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> what was it? What? Yeah, that's like week 17 in the NFL when you get hurt. You're you're on a, a losing team. You're about to go on vacation, and somebody. I was week 17. Marshawn Lynch exploded my hand trying to arm tackle him, and there went my off season with three minutes to go in a meaningless game. How about the? What's the scariest hit by pitch or you know hit by you know pitcher getting hit by a baseball that you saw in person? The guy that was hitting, when I got hit in the kneecap, the guy who was hitting before me got hit. He turned the wrong way and hit him right in the mouth. And so when I went up the home plate, uh, it's Edwin Rodriguez. Edwin used to manage the, 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 the Marlins. Uh, but Edwin got hit. And I remember going up the home plate, and there was just blood everywhere and teeth laying on the ground. And uh, that, was, that was probably the scariest one I've ever seen was uh, – yeah, I mean, he took it. I mean, it hit him about 90-something miles an hour, hit him flush in the mouth, and uh, that was that was ugly. That yeah, those hockey, play, those hockey players are fucking crazy because that's that way more good. regular than I would want to. Yeah. That's perfect because unwritten baseball rules, you know, there's a code of hitting guys. There's a code of pimping home runs. Where are you on unwritten rules? Because I'm always like, Wookie, that, this shit seems so dumb, some of these rules. Uh, but – where are you on it in 2020 and where were you when you played? You know, I, I well, I hated it when I played, uh, you know, but I came up in an, uh, in an era where, you know, you had Nolan Ryans and Pedro Martinez and you know, guys like that who weren't afraid to throw at your, you know, throw at your head when you did something stupid. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I started talking to more pitchers the last few years because I was always against the pimp and a home run and all that stuff. and. Uh, but you know, the pitchers are like, you know, if he hits it good, you know, I don't really care. So I started thinking, well, if the pitchers don't care, why should I? So it's, it's some of them are pretty comical. Uh, yeah. the bat flips and the whole deal. Uh, you know, the only thing I don't like is like, if a guy hits a home run, he wings his bat over toward the other team's dugout. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, but if he just stands there and watch it and flips the bat, I could give a rat's ass anymore. You know, it's just. Fan, yeah. Fans, fans, and pitchers, baseball fans can seem really hy- uh, hypocritical sometimes because you know I was in St. Louis and Pujols would you know hit these moonshots and watch him and flip his bat or whatever, and then the minute an opponent does it, it's hey we don't do that here that's classless or pitchers <laughs> who throw a fucking conniption or a shit fit when they strike somebody out, the next thing you know somebody hits a dinger and there you're not allowed to do anything you run to first. Well. I played when I was playing in San Diego. We were playing the Giants up in Candlestick, which is probably the most awful place in the in God's green earth to ever go. <laughs> yeah. I, hey, listen, my wife it wasn't allowed cold. to wear Rams jerseys at Candlestick, so uh, and it gets really cold at night in Candlestick. Really yeah. cold. Freezing in July. But, yeah. So Keith Moreland uh, was on our team in San Diego, and he hit a home run, 
and like back then you did like we didn't know what home run what the significance was of the home run uh but apparently it was his like 200th home run or something well he i'm i'm on deck so i go up the home plate to congratulate him he does a freaking cartwheel Huh. Now, if you know Keith Moreland, Keith played football at the University of Texas, so he doesn't look like a baseball player. Right, right, right. Uh, and he did a cartwheel, and I'm like, are you shitting me? Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, all right, where's this going to hit me? And I forget who was catching. It might have been Kurt Manwaring was catching. And I said, I said, where do you think this is going to – I said, look, just don't hit me in the head, man. I, yeah. I coming, but just don't hit me in the head. He goes, yeah. He said, I, don't, I think I'd be light on my feet if I were you. I said, I'll just do it. So, and they threw one close, and then, and then that was it. But uh, you I know, looked. I, I went in the dugout after. I, I told Keith. I said, What the? <laughs> what are you doing, man? You're doing a car. Well, he said it was my 200th home run. I said, Well, congratulations. Who cares? <laughs> you know, do a cartwheel when you get in the dugout. Don't do it when I'm. At home play. There he is. I'm looking at him right now, and the ah. first thing I notice is he's got the the obligatory lipper in the back pop pocket there. And I yeah. was going to ask you, uh, you all always had the lippers in. Uh, it's not allowed anymore. Definitely not in COVID season. But what? How do players get around it now? Uh, I, I think players still do it. I think it's just uh, like they don't want to see the skull can or whatever in your back pocket or. You know, putting in a putting in a dip on on camera if a camera can catch you. Some guys still do it. They just go just up in the tunnel and they just go in the tunnel and put it in so no one can see it. The cameras can't catch you. But I mean, some of these guys come up the home plate, man. Like, come on. What was the dip of choice in the in the early '90s in Philly? Let's Philly 1992. What was the dip of choice? Uh, Copenhagen. Copenhagen yeah. was the uh, you know Red Man. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. if you want the pouch, you want the leaf, you go to the red mat. Yeah. Uh, I, I started, I, I I was never one to take care of myself. And so, like, if I ever got a toothache, yeah. you know, from, you know, the doc, the dentist would say, well, it's because you chewed tobacco since you were, you know, like, I grew up in West Virginia, man. We started when we were 12, you know? Yeah, well, we were just yeah. east of you, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were dipping in Little League. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, little did we know. But, like... So instead of getting like teeth fixed to take the time during the season to get like a root canal and have to go back and pull the son of a bitch, just pull it, keep pulling. Right. So now from chewing tobacco, I don't, I only have like one or two of my real teeth on this side, but I couldn't chew on the other side for some reason. I don't know. I don't know if it's because I was a Polish and didn't, couldn't figure it out or George Brett always had to chew on this side. He said it helped keep his eye open when he was hitting. Hold on, George Brett. Hey, George Brett and my dad are buddies, okay? And I had no idea. I got a little signed baseball from George Brett. I thought he was the nicest dude in the world. George Brett used to shit himself. That's yeah. the story. That He used to just walk up to people and tell them about he shit himself in Vegas at a casino. He just shit himself at the game last night. What's up with that? Well, apparently he's very, very proud of his bowel movements. Is the only way I can see it. But oh, I I love George. I, I mean, that was uh, that was one of the great things about spring training because uh, there was no interleague. Is whenever we'd go play the Royals, like I always made a point to speak to him. So I got this buddy in Kansas City that does ribs. So every time I go to Kansas City, this guy brings ribs to wherever you know our booth or whatever. 
So he said, hey, next year when you come, he said, I'm going to be, uh, I looked at the schedule. I'm probably not going to be in town, but I'll have my buddy George bring you some stuff. So I'm texting this guy, George, for almost a year. So we go back to Kansas City the next year, and I get a text. But I said, hey, I'll be up. I got some uh, ribs for you. And I said, we also caught some salmon. We smoked it. So we have some smoked salmon and made a dip out of it. And I'll bring you crackers and the whole deal. I'm like, shoot, that's great. I said, do you need credentials to get up to our announcer's booth? And he said, no, I think I'm good. And it was George Brett. I was texting George freaking Brett for a year. Didn't <laughs> know it. Oh, boy. You know what? Oh, well, he seems like a guy who would, would take it pretty well. No, it's funny because now every time he texts me or something, he'll say, hey, this is George Mitch's. And Mitch was his guy they did ribs together. Yeah. He said, this is George Mitch's, Mitch's partner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speak, speaking of George Brett and bowel movements, I actually had this written down. This is a burning question for me because in football, if you got to go, it's a problem. Like sudden change, turnovers, that sort of thing. Guys will take leaks on the sideline. If you ever see a guy taking a knee, not to take in a knee that's famous right now, but taking a knee behind the Gatorade cooler with a bunch of trainers around him, they're taking a leak. But number two, you guys have a really nice setup. You've got these cushy bathrooms. You, it's very quiet. And I always wonder, if you're running in the dugout to take a deuce, is it wildly peaceful to do that, knowing there's 50,000 people upstairs and you can't hear them, or is it, like, terrifying? Um... It depends on where you're at. Like these new ballparks now are beautiful, but like Wrigley, Wrigley was a, a open, like you go down the tunnel, like literally 10 feet, five, five, 10 feet from the dugout. And there was just a toilet sitting there in a little cutout area, no door, no nothing. So you could go back up there like to, to just, you know, relieve some anxiety, you know, or whatever, yeah. get pissed off and try to break something. And someone could be in there, taking one <laughs> and, and in Houston the Astrodome it used to be right above the dugout so you know up like two or three steps and it was literally up on a little platform but it was fully exposed no doors no nothing and that's not peaceful John no but you really know how much you like your teammates if you don't mind it yeah. and, well, you know, in uh, Candlestick, you, we used to have to run across the field. They didn't have a bathroom in the dugout. So to get to our clubhouse, we had to run across the field. We were on the third base side. We had to run across. Down the right field line, there's a little trap door by the, uh, uh, the Giants' bullpen. And you'd have to go in there, uh, go in the clubhouse to have it. So then they put one in. And it was a, they literally had a box with a door on it. And our pitching coach one day had to go in there. Uh, Johnny Padres, love Johnny, but he went in there. He had to go to the bathroom. He couldn't get the door back open. No, it was funny as hell. He's in, there and everybody knew you run into that bathroom. Well, and he smoked too. So I mean, he's in there. There's smoke coming out, and you know, he's in there <laughs> cupping one while he's taking a dump, you know. And then he's like, "Get me out of this goddamn place, Jesus Christ!" <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was funny, man. So they had to they had to get a maintenance guy to come down and try to get the door open to get him out. Oh God. Like it the was, jaws of life at you yeah. know on the side of the highway. They're just extracting this <laughs> this dude with a heater in his hand smelling like a porta potty. How about um how about ballparks you miss that that aren't existent anymore besides the vet? Ugh. Uh you know, I, I grew up 
going to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore and Three Rivers in Pittsburgh. You know, we, my dad would take us, uh, I, uh, you know, once a year to go, my brothers and I and some friends or whatever, and we go watch the Orioles one time and then the Pirates. But uh, the stadium that I miss the most is Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium. Now it's more corporate. You know, you look at behind home plate and they have those whatever thousand dollars a game seats back there. And uh, it's just not the same atmosphere when you go there. Even the players will tell you that, that, uh, yeah. you know, it's just not the same. But like, I, I remember my first at bat in, in old Yankee Stadium and I walked in the box. You talk about wanting to crap yourself. <laughs> Babe Ruth hit here. Lou Gehrig hit here. Mickey Mantle. I mean, I mean, I, 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 it was like, you got to be kidding me. What? Like, like, who doesn't belong here? And that person was me because, you know, these guys are like some of the greatest players that's ever played the game of baseball. And you're in the same batter's box with them. That's, that's incredible. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. So um, another thing that Chris and I joke about is superstitions, right? You know, pitchers, you know, some refuse to step on the line. They have to jump over it. Um, you know, hitters have their, you know, fix the batting gloves two times. Were you superstitious? Um, and if and then what are the weirdest ones that you've seen or the ones that crack you up the most? Uh, I, I wasn't that bad. Like, but I, I would, uh, if I was going good, I made sure I put the right sock on first and then the left one second or, uh, you know, put, when I was going up the hit, I put one batting glove on first and the other. When you're going bad, you just go up there and whatever. But the guy that to me, uh, Lenny Dykstra was – he was special. Yeah. <laughs> we were wondering when Lenny would come out from the outside. Well, he he had to have a new pair of batting gloves for batting practice every day and then a new pair for every at bat. So he would go through like 700 something pairs of batting gloves in a year. But I remember one game we were playing and he he made it out of his first at bat. He made it out of second at bat and it was a pitcher he thought he should handle pretty well. So after the next inning, I come up in the in the clubhouse uh, to cool off, you know, because we had a, at least we had air conditioning in there. So I went up there just to cool off for a little bit. Lenny's in there butt naked. And I'm like, what the hell? I mean, did they take him out of the game or what? He had taken his entire uniform off and threw it in the garbage because he said he thought it was bad luck and the equipment guys bringing him out all new stuff. Like, took everything off. That's so bad, dude. Oh, God. He That's was so also, a, you don't want to walk in and just see Lenny Dykstra naked, I would imagine. So No, no, it wasn't my first choice of sights when I walked in there. But, <laughs> you know, hey, it could have been worse. Let's do a lightning round grab bag and get you out of here, man. Again, we appreciate the time. Um, how about best baseball movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. oh I, I Pride of the Yankees about Lou Gehrig. Wow. Love that movie. M McGrain, you seen that one? No, I haven't. I, I thought right, you were going to list. I thought you were going to talk about the cat that you grew up with, Chris Joe Boo, that your dad. Yeah, banned I had a cat outside. named Joe Boo uh, from uh, from Major League, and and when I met uh, that actor, who unfortunately is a great actor, I can't remember his name. I couldn't wait to tell him I had a cat named Joe Boo. He had he'd heard enough one liners about Major League. I think he was over it. Uh, how about cheesesteaks? You still got a shop. Yeah. I heard you have a shop down there in Florida. Yeah, we got what, what does it take to make a good cheesesteak? Uh, the right meat and the right bread. I think the bread, though, is more important than the meat. Yeah. Uh, we get everything shipped down from Philly. So uh, 
uh, we wanted the original as, as close as we can get to an original Florida. So I, I, I think the, the biggest thing is, uh, is the bread, the roll. I never had one in Philly. This is the shameful admission by me. And I've admitted it once or twice, but you know, it's been since I fell in love with that city as an athlete, you know, I was there two years, but I can't be hammering cheesesteaks late at night, let alone drinking beer at 33, 34 years old. So, you know, I'll get that, those love handles sticking out the side of my jersey, which is not great in football. So I got to try one uh, first in Philly. What should that be? I know this is your competition, but. No, we don't have any up there. You know, I. uh, The the ones at the ballpark are good. Um, God, now the name's escaping me, but. You know, everyone says Pats and Geno's. Uh, you know, you have to go try both because they're different. Yeah. Uh, one of them has the – it's just like a, a slab of meat that's not chopped up. I prefer the chopped up because, like I mentioned previously about my teeth and stuff, I don't need to be chewing a lot of things right now. But uh, yeah. uh, I like the chopped up meat the best in this cheesesteak. And I forget which one is Pats or Geno's. One does it that way and the other does it the other way. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, what about uh, favorite swing of all time? Uh, Tony Gwynn, my former teammate, roommate. Yeah. Tony was impressive. But I think the prettiest swing was probably uh, uh, Junior. Ken Griffey yeah. Jr. Had put, yep. For everything. Average power, the whole deal. I mean, he had – it was sickening watching him as a 19-year-old when he first came up with that swing. You're like, how the hell did he get that swing already, you know? Beautiful. Uh, his Beautiful. dad had a good swing too, though. Uh, from my group text, the boys back home, most beers drank in one sitting. Well, <laughs> that would be golfing with my buddies in West Virginia. Cause normally we play, uh, Saturdays. We, when I go up there to visit, we play, uh, uh, at least 45 holes. So yeah, I'd say we, we hit personally, I I'd say back in the day when I was young and scrapping, probably in the thirties. Do you go back there a lot to to hit the casinos back there in West Virginia? Yeah, aren't you? Are, are you uh, Charleston? No, I born there, but no, where I where I grew up, man, it, we ain't near nothing. I mean, it what, is. What's the name cool. of the the quote unquote town? Uh, Kaiser's a town I went to high school in, but uh, the town we grew up in was New Creek. It was, uh, it, well, I think someone said five hundred people, but. Uh, it might not be that many now, but um, we, we used to go play in Beckley, but um, I can't yeah. think of that's probably a ways from you. Down you're... the south, yeah, yeah. How yeah. about best yeah. mullet in baseball? This was Wookie's burning question. It's like who's got the better power mullet, pitchers, hitters, or who had the best mullet in baseball back in the day? Well, I, Randy Johnson had the best, and because he has a really long neck and it still looked long, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so. You know, that that to me is a great accomplishment in life. Now, you know, you can take away his perfect game and all the strikeouts and all the wins and, you know, the Hall of Fame and all that stuff. But when you have a neck as long as Randy and you can still have a legitimate mullet that came down below your jersey, your name on your jersey, he's my idol, man. Look, you, look, you, had, you had one that you, you said was, was your goat uh, mullet rocker. Pete Vukovic. I thought he had a solid yeah. mullet. I thought he had a solid mullet. Yeah. Yeah. He had a good one. But Randy's, it's just amazing. Like, if you put Randy's mullet on my no neck. Yeah. Like, like I'd have had to move it away to go to the bathroom. (laughs) 
One last question. Who's going to win the uh, quote-unquote World Series this year? And you can't say the Phillies. Okay. If I can't say the Phillies, I would say uh, the Yankees. They're, okay. Yanks. They're loaded. They're pretty loaded. All right. Well, well, John, we appreciate your time, man, so much. And uh, we get back up to Philly. Let's get a beer or something when yeah. this thing passes. Yeah. Just call me, man. I'll be there. You got okay. it, brother. You got yeah. it. Great talking to you. Thanks, uh, be safe and see you in Philly. See you, Wookie. Thanks. Yeah, man. All right, so um, that was John Cruck, um, one of the best storytellers we've had on this on this podcast. And we haven't had a lot of – I don't know if we've had any other Major League Baseball players. I mean, we had Doolittle uh, in the fall, but it's been a while. Um, and certainly one of my childhood favorites and, and Wookie, Coach Wookie as well. So mailbag, first Instagram source mailbag. And my IG crowd is really, really positive. They're really happy. No, they're not all emo like my Twitter friends. Like, listen, I see the world's fucked up. I don't need Twitter every day to know the world's fucked up. Like, I don't need that. So the Instagram crowd, it's it's very welcome for me. You know who I like on Instagram who seems to have a nice little groove on IG is Lil Duval, who uh, is obviously a comedian who does a lot of, I mean, consistent, great content on IG, really positive. As he says, he's living his best life, and I'm going to strive to live my best life. Um, and uh, IG is a lot more conducive to that than Twitter. So thank you to the, those of you that hit up uh, the DMs with the, uh, with the mailbag questions today. Uh, Peggy Thompson, okay, first one. I mentioned uh, My Morning Jacket uh, earlier. One of my favorite bands of all time. Um, they are coming out with a new album on Friday, Waterfall 2. She asks, Peggy does, if I am excited about the new MMJ. I'm beyond excited. Listen, as I said, one of my favorite bands, one of the last real rock and roll bands out there, one of the best live bands of all time. I wasn't around in the 60s, but I've seen a lot of live music. These fucking guys are first-class performers. And um, really rangy and also good people. Uh, I know some of the guys personally. I try not to bug them about the music or pry. I've talked about Pat Hallahan on this show as being one of my favorite, like, quote unquote, celebrities outside of football, uh, drummer for MMJ. And as much as I talk to Pat in particular, I try not to bother them about, like, hey, what's going on with, with Jacket? Like, you know, are y'all going to keep making music? Are y'all, you know, are y'all going to come out with an album this year? Like, I heard. Somebody say earlier this year, oh, you know, kind of in passing, uh, we're out in Cali recording, you know, which I was like, oh, that's a good sign. They're out in Cali recording. They're, they're doing some new music. We'll see. Maybe we'll get something in the fall or the winter. I did not see this coming. Um, admittedly, I've been knee deep in this podcast, so I haven't been like following, you know, the rumor mill on when Jacket was going to come out with another uh, album. They dropped an announcement, like a little tease announcement, like yesterday on IG. Uh, with a little snippet from one of their songs, presumably. It sounded great. Uh, and I was like, oh, it's coming. Uh, I had no idea it was coming this Friday. I'm so excited. Everybody's been anxiously awaiting a new project. It's been about five years. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. They, um, they were supposed to play in this, this uh, festival called Ohana this fall in California, and that was going to be the big guys trip. Uh, Pearl Jam, I think, was out there, too. Woo, that's going to be awesome when it comes back in the fall. I can't wait. If you're not a Jacket fan, I'll make you a Jacket playlist and post it to Twitter. Yes, Twitter. 
Um, you know, for beginners, I'll find a way to put it on IG as well. Uh, but start with their live album that you can get on Spotify, Okanokos, uh, and you know, listen to I think I'm going to hell, Don Dante, Lay Low, Steam Engine, um, and you'll get it. I promise you'll get it. But I, I will. Uh, it's rock and roll. You know, I I, I turned uh, Jason Kelsey onto these guys. I've, I've turned a number of people onto these guys. And uh, like any good, you know, musical act or band, you need somebody to put you on, then you try to spread the gospel. And uh, shout out to Tom Paquette uh, for spreading the gospel to me uh, about 10 years ago. You know, I started listening to Jacket like my first or second year in the league. Um, I can't remember what year exactly, but kind of caught the bug. And I'm not one of those OG Jacket fans that was around in the late 90s, but I've seen them play in the teens. I mean, at least 10, 20 times probably. I've seen them everywhere from Red Rocks to Charlottesville. I've seen them in Mexico. I love that band. And I'm so happy they're continuing to make music. So I'll make a little playlist and whatnot. Kirby Shaw asks, what are your thoughts on Freddie Gibbs and Alchemist um, album Alfredo? Followed you for a long time. I know you're a Gibbs fan. Listen, I love Freddie Gibbs. Um, Top five out for me. Uh, I haven't done that homework or that math, uh, but he's got to be top five for me out right now. Um, Freddie and Alchemist are great together. It it makes a lot of sense. Um, 1985 bangs. I love some guitar on uh, on a hip hop production, and you know from time to time, and they nail it on 1985. I wish the song was longer. The sample makes it. Um, Scotty Beam's fire. My kind of production. It's a 35-minute album, uh, and, and with a new album, I never know where I'm going to stand on a rap album for a couple months, uh, and I really like this one to start, but I can only like it you know, more and more because that's usually how it goes uh, the more I listen to an album that I do like. Uh, I can rem- remember listening to Good Kid, Mad City, which to me is an all-time classic, and Kendrick is if not my favorite, still, still out. Uh, he's definitely one of them. I, I I didn't like the album at first. Two months later, I thought it was one of the best of all time. Um, and let me tell you something. My favorite project that Freddie probably did was, uh, to this point, was uh, Bandana, followed by Pinata. Bandana was my favorite album of the year, probably. And Palm Olive was probably the hardest song in the album. Giannis, Cataracts is a, a song you're going to get a speeding ticket to. I used to drive so fast to that song last year, last summer. Also, an album that came out, you know, when I was retired, I was free. And, you know, when you're going through a big stage in your life like that, music uh, is very nostalgic. For for me, it's going to be hard to top Bandana, um, which I thought was the best album of that year, but Alfredo keeps getting better every time I listen to it. Uh, Education's a great song, too, off of... uh, off of bandana and you know you got black thought on there he has to be a top five active rapper from a standpoint of respecting his craft if not top three i haven't done the math again love freddie gibbs they killed it um yeah in the sky asked me and this was a loaded one for the first day on ig are you guys going to touch on the sean's the deshaun stuff or probably not too soon never too soon to touch on something i'm not afraid to touch on it I like Deshaun. Every time I've been around him, seems like a really good guy. Uh, that was disappointing because maybe I don't get it 
I saw a ton of people defending him on Twitter somehow, which is another reason why Twitter sucks a big fat ass. Um, the guy made a mistake. It's a bad mistake. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's not for me to decide, you know, as I said, with the Drew Brees or something like that, not that I don't do the comparison thing with this stuff because it's also nuanced and the, I mean, this is, these are heavy topics, but just like with Drew Brees, like I don't get to decide when, you know, his apology or his learning process on this thing, um, is complete. I'm not all the way caught up on the Deshaun thing, to be honest. Um, all I know is he talked bad about Jewish people and somehow managed to use a fake Hitler quote doing it. And that is a fucking disaster. And I can't speak for the many people in the media or on Twitter who kind of bite their tongue on this thing because when it comes to anti-Semitism, uh, it's not in vogue to denounce it or, you know, they have some geopolitical inclination or political inclination that complicates denouncing it. Um, I think it's fucked up unequivocally. And uh, I try not to paint faith um or religion with a broad brush um you know i don't care what religion it is and uh i know it's in vogue to punch nazis we love doing that we love doing memes about that we all would say we would punch a nazi but it it's not it doesn't seem like it's in vogue to call out anti-semitism um we're not so keen on that i mean quoting hitler is is really bad business but quoting fake hitler quotes is is like a cherry on top i don't know if it'd be worse if you quoted a real one or the fake one. Needless to say, it's wrong. Um, and I'm sure some people are like, because it seems like, I don't know what it is, but it seems like uh, we're not allowed to like say, hey, that's not good. I, it's not good. Um, it's wrong. And I'm sure I have Jewish listeners. Uh, I am against anti-Semitism. And uh, I didn't see, and I haven't seen nearly enough people saying, yeah, man, this was a misstep. And uh, I'm not going to do the thing where we say, well, Riley Cooper didn't get cut. Why should Deshaun? I'm not doing the comparison thing. I'm not asking for you know a certain type of punishment for Deshaun. I'm not saying that he should get cut. Come on, you know Riley didn't get cut for saying what he said, and I'm not equating the two. But that's the thing that I've seen everybody what abouting today. You know, come to think of it, with Riley, when it happened, I thought he should have gotten cut. Um, and this was Riley Cooper in Philly, coincidentally, but. As I thought about it more, you know, knowing I had no control over the the punitive measures the league takes, I mean, this was only hypothetically, like, what do you think should happen to him? All I know is that Riley Cooper, um, the best way that he can come out of it better, if that's what we want, we want somebody to change or learn from their mistakes. Um, he kind of couldn't have a better crash course in learning from his mistakes than re-entering, um, you know, a locker room full of black guys. And that's your career. Like, Kind of awkward when that video surfaces and you got to go back to work. It, it almost do him a disservice to cut him um, because, you know, maybe he would just kind of hang out with everybody that looks like him. Uh, he had to go back to work and I'm sure he had some tough conversations and I'm sure he learned from it. I, I would hope, um, you know, we want people to change. Uh, I think it's gonna be tougher for Deshaun to get that opportunity in football. You know, it doesn't look like he's going to get cut. I think that's fine. Um, I'm not saying he should, but he's a role model, and uh, we gave it to Drew Brees pretty hard for being, at, at the very best, extremely tone deaf, and certainly anti-Semitism is not the main event in this country, but we can walk and chew gum here. Um, I am just not willing to accept anybody saying, you know, stick to the task at hand. We can't address, you know, people making anti-Semitic comments. Uh, hopefully, Deshaun learns from it, uh, from people outside the building, because that's the thing. I don't know if you haven't noticed, there's not a lot of Jewish guys walking around playing football uh, at the NFL level. so. 
Uh, I'm sure he's got a lot of fans uh, who are Jewish and disappointed. Uh, I, I think he's better than that, and I, I hope um, I hope he's learned from it. And I'm not sure if he's apologized yet. Certainly not a main event on this pod, um, but it popped up in the mailbag, and uh, that's how I feel about it. So hopefully he learns from it. Bill the Bear asks um, what BLM or anti-racist, uh, anti-racism systemic inequality book or title I'm currently reading or anticipate reading in the future. Uh, listen, I, I went through this, this, um, this process like four years ago and a friend of mine um, gave me a list of like five books and um, I've read all of them at least in, um, in part. Uh, now the one to me that was, you know, the most eye opening, and this was not somebody who was like arriving at a place from a place where I don't think racism exists. Like I know undoubtedly racism exists and has existed for a long time. And, uh, but you need anecdotes, you need information, you need, you know, um, evidence that, you know, is there, but you you've got to be able to talk about this stuff to be able to convey your convictions to other people. And I thought the book for me that was, uh, was really informationally rich and effective uh, and eye opening was uh, new Jim Crow and new Jim Crow is a book by Michelle Alexander that um, you need to sit down and focus as you read because every page has a lot of information revelations that will explain a lot of why you can't just say well slavery ended you know x amount of years ago uh america has found ways to um perpetuate inequality that are a lot more covert than slavery um and aren't even really that covert um new jim crow really eye-opening. And that would be my first one. I don't want to send you like five books. Read that one. Start there. Um, appreciate you asking. Dennis Begley um, asked me about a Mount Rushmore of Stapleton songs. That's a tough one. Because here's the thing with Stapleton. Stapleton's music's awesome. Chris Stapleton, one of my favorites. But his music with the Steel Drivers was just as good and better. Um, and if I'm doing a, a Mount Rushmore of his, it's almost like you need two of them. And Steel Drivers are more of a bluegrass band. Um, and they kicked some serious ass. I'll give you a Steel Drivers Mount Rushmore, uh, Where Rainbows Never Die, Higher Than the Wall, Ghosts of Mississippi, and Heaven Sent. Those are my four favorite Steel Driver songs. Now, he's also covered some good songs as a solo artist. Uh, Last Thing I Needed, that's Willie, Friendship. Um, Tennessee whiskey, those are all good, but his songs, let me go death row. Uh, that was a song that me and Fletcher Cox used to listen to every game in the corner of the locker room. We, uh, yeah, that song takes me back to, you know, it's just a, it's a great song. It's probably my favorite Stapleton song. Either way is vocally amazing. Um, devil name music. You know, I identify with it. You know, he's talking about being burnt out on the road, missing his family, missing his kids, like missing life because he's playing music. And towards the end of my career, I kind of felt that way about football. Um, and then might as well get stoned. I would love to get stoned with Chris Stapleton. Uh, is a great one as well. Uh, so, yeah, Stapleton, two Mount Rushmore's there for you. Who said you don't get what you want in the mailbag? It's even better on IG. 
Patrick Kennedy, do you own a MMJ vinyl? What's your general, what's your general take on vinyl? Do you have a lot of it? Do you like it? I got a ton of vinyl. I got more than I can listen to because that's the thing with vinyl. You really need to sit down and focus. And uh, although the sound quality is as advertised and I've just gotten into it more so recently, I had a record player the last five years and I hadn't plugged it in because I was living in apartments and cities and that sort of thing. I got two young kids. Like, when can I really jam out and play loud music? But man, that shit is high quality. You get good speakers. Uh, I got some, you know, at the office, I got a, a, you know, a record player at home now. And when I can find the time, I do have a jacket. I have a few jacket uh, records and um, it definitely elevates the, the quality of the music. I'm not some like hipster where I can explain to you why, but it sounds better. Um, but one time early on, uh, I called our producer Cowboy Reed one night at like eight o'clock. I was working at the office and I had thrown on um, Sound and Fury. It was a Sturgill album. And, uh, you know, A side finished. And uh, here I am thinking my record player is broken. It's just clicking. And I am stoned as a fucking. <laughs> as stone can be. And I call cowboy Reed. It's like one of his first weeks on the job. And I'm like, Hey man, like something's wrong with my record player. And you know, he drives in from his house. Luckily he lives five, 10 minutes away. I'm sure he's thinking, what the fuck is wrong with my boss? Uh, and he walks in and he says, have you tried flipping the record? <laughs> and I said, yeah, um, I'll try that. That sounds good. And uh, I did, and it worked. I like vinyl. I'm going to get more into it. Shayna Penn asks, uh, how do you think COVID could affect recent efforts of expanding the league internationally? It's a great question. It's one that I've grappled with a little bit. And I think it's undeniable this year is a real setback for that. Now, I don't know this catastrophic. That would be an exaggeration. London has always been the play. And I've played there uh, against the Patriots, although I forgot it because we got beat by 44-7. I blacked it out. Nice fan base when I played there. You know, definitely like our soccer fans. You know, it's kind of probably a hipstery thing to do in, uh, in England, like kind of like being a soccer fan is here. You know, like me, I don't understand everything about soccer. I feel like maybe a lot of the English fans don't quite get football yet, but they're working on it and they love it. And the NFL sees that. Now, I don't know about the functionality of having a team in London, but the fan base is there. Ironically, they're all Jaguars fans. So not to mention, they're not going to have a game this year in London, but uh, the Jags are going to be an absolute dumpster fire. And that's the London team. So I think in a few ways, this year hurts. Now, if you know Jags were good this year and they couldn't go to London, that's one thing, but they're going to be bad. No games in London. It's going to be a tough year. They can overcome it, but it's going to be a tough year. The NFL is going to, whatever the NFL wants to do, as you're seeing with COVID and, and the season in 2020, like they're going to try to do it and uh, they're going to be hell bent on getting a team out there. Now, I don't know if it's going to work. Players are going to go for it, but uh, eventually on the horizon, we're going to see that. And finally, uh, I want to do a couple shout outs here. I want to shout out Brad Kerr, who messaged me a really nice message when he was 14. He came up to uh, Montana to this thing called the Hoop Fest that, uh, you know, this is probably years ago. We're both 30 something year old dudes now. The Hoop Fest is this three-on-three tournament that people come from all over the place, like uh, in the Pacific Northwest, to play in the street ball tournament. And of course, it is just um, a bunch of like white dudes. There's some Native American ballers. There was a dunk contest. I was in it when I was in high school. It's at night. It's in this small town in Montana, uh, out in the street. They shut down Main Street. Um, 
I saw a, a, a white dude that looked like white chocolate jump over a Mustang. It was a black and gold Mustang. It was fucking insane. I was like, where am I right now? Am I at Rucker Park or am I in a town with a population of 800, uh, mostly white dudes? Um, but, you know, there was a, a judges panel that year when uh, my friend here, Brad Kerr, came out as he uh, filled me in um, in the DMs on, you know, he came to the Hoop Fest. There was a judges panel. It was my dad and it was Phil Jackson were two of the judges. He obviously bypassed Phil Jackson in his six uh, championship rings to talk to the, 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 um, the star of Firestorm and told him what a great movie he thought it was. And my dad was evidently very kind and gracious. And uh, Brad Kerr is a listener of the pod. So shout out to Brad Kerr. Final shout out. Shout out to Eric Shulman. He's evidently a D coordinator and history teacher at Hamilton uh high school i suppose uh the blue Devils. so shout out to the blue devils and uh and eric shulman what a killer combo there history teacher and a d coordinator my type of guy listens to all the pods shout out to all you listeners um check me out on ig on my ig story that's my new twitter um ig is the new twitter and i'll be back on friday with uh with another hopefully very good pod um to a week now so it might be a little longer Bear with us. Uh, talk to you all soon. Take care.